Open your Bibles to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. And as you're turning there, for those of you who like to stay with me, stay in the reading and keep up with what we work on on Sunday night, just to give you a heads up, this is planned to be the last lesson in Isaiah, I believe, until next year. And we will do uh, come back to John uh, and work on John uh, the rest of the way until we get back to Isaiah. So, so you can start understanding that shift and know where we're going in our studies. Uh, this will be a good stopping point, I believe, in, in Isaiah's message because Isaiah has been prophesying an explanation to the people of why they can put their hope in God. Here's why you can trust in the Lord, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of the disaster, that God is proving to his people that they are not forgotten by God, that God has them before their mind and written on their hands, and therefore they should trust in the Lord and wait for the promises of God to come to pass. In particular, pointing out that he is going to send a servant, not only sending Cyrus as a servant who would set the people free from Babylonian captivity, but a greater servant was going to arise who's going to be a light to the nations and is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And God has been continuing to offer this message of hope that the people will be vindicated, that God is going to set them free through this servant. And in these last two chapters that we're going to look at for a while, Isaiah 51 and 52, uh, you're going to notice that there is really three promises that are given. And then we're going to notice two comforts And then a call to action. And it's all bound up in these two chapters. So we have a lot of territory to cover, and I'm a little concerned about that. But it's one stream message. In fact, I want you just to see it real quick. It's broken down very simply. Notice Isaiah 51, verse 1. Listen to me. Verse 4. Give attention to me. Verse 7. Listen to me. There's your three promises. Listen, listen, listen. And then there's going to be a pause is there's a prayer and a response of God. And then notice that we're going to get the things of comfort as he's going to say, verse 9, awake of chapter 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself. Chapter 52, verse 1, awake, awake. So then you come to the end of all that. And then in verse 11 and 52, it says, depart, depart. So listen, 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 wake up, wake up, wake up and go. That's what we're doing in these two chapters of what Isaiah wants to give as his final messages here of hope before he really expounds upon the message of the glorious servant who's going to come to take away their sins. With that being the case, we're going to pick and choose the moments that we're going to read just for the sake of time. But let's start with the first three verses of Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him. And multiply him for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of Saul. First promise. God says, 
Put your trust in this. I am going to restore. And you know that God is able to accomplish a, an amazing, massive restoration. He says, here's how you can know that. He says in verse 2, look to Abraham. Remember what happened with him. And he says, Abraham was just one. No family, no nothing. We look at Abraham, inability to have children. We look at Sarah, unable to have children as well. And God says, don't you know what I can do, even in what seems to be impossible circumstances? You know that I have the power for restoration. Look at the rock that you were cut. Look at Abraham, who started as one, and it should have been impossible for him to have children as numerous as the sand of the sea, and to make a great nation out of him and yet God did that very thing and so he tells his people and says you know that God can do it the point being when God determines to do something it doesn't matter how seemingly impossible the obstacle is God can accomplish it and he will do it if God says he's going to do it it doesn't matter how impossible it looks he will do it And Abraham is the best example of that. In the face of an impossible obstacle, he brings about his promises and carries out his covenant. That's his first promise. Promise number one to his people. He will restore. Second promise, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me. And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Second promise, God is going to reveal himself, but he's not only going to reveal himself to Israel, he's going to reveal his instructions to the world. It's one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time when we say the prophets and when we study the New Testament talking about remembering how everything had been cut off from the people, the loss of covenant, the loss of relationship, the loss of of revelation has taken place because the people are being sent into captivity. And you get to the days of Malachi where God says, we're just not talking anymore. It's all broken down and and shattered. And here is Isaiah promising and saying, now there's going to be a new revelation. There's going to be a new covenant, a new revealing. And what I'm going to do is make sure that salvation is going to come to the ends of the earth. In fact, you have to really enjoy verse 6 when he says, the earth could pass away. Everything can wear out like a garment. But let me tell you this, my righteousness, my faithfulness, and my salvation do not wear out. These things will stand. And so I don't care how temporary everything else is in life and how everything else may fall apart. The promises of God, God's faithfulness, his righteousness will always stand. And so he says, I'm bringing restoration. Number one, I'm bringing salvation. Number two, now he says third, and it's going to last. Love it. Verse seven. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. 
Fear not the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Notice he says almost the same thing, and he simply tacks on that this is a lasting salvation. It is not only going to reach out everywhere, but it is going to continue on forever. And one of the best parts of it is in verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, and notice the description, the people in whose heart is my law. And now he defines what his people look like. My laws are in your hearts. And if my law is in your heart, then salvation is coming to you. You can guarantee it for my faithfulness, my righteousness lasts forever. And that's how you put these three promises together. God says, I'm going to restore this covenant. And so that I can have a people who are going to belong to me and I'm going to bless them. And in that blessing, whoever belongs to me, whoever listens to my teachings, whoever hears my words and puts those teachings in my heart, they will have lasting salvation. There's just three simple promises. And God says, I never fail. Look to Abraham as the proof that you know that salvation will come if his instructions are in your heart. Now, Isaiah, I think, takes a turn right here in verse nine, because what he seems to do now is now pray for God to do that now. It's almost as if he hears the message of this and says, God is going to teach the world and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he's made a covenant that cannot be broken. And we're going to be his people. We're going to be blessed. Isaiah just kind of stops and goes, now. Do it now. Bring it now. Verse 9. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Notice he just calls to the power of God. He just says, wake up, power of God, and do it right now. Yes, that is exactly what we need. That is what we want. Verse 9. Awake is in the old days. The generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You can just hear Isaiah jumping on that and saying, act on those Promises. Let the arm of the Lord come to pass and bring this, this joy and bring us this gladness. Set us free so that we can be the redeemed and come into your people and come into your dwelling and praise you. And so Isaiah, I think, just kind of seizes on that and says, let that be the case. And notice how God responds to that. In verse 12, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he set himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bound down shall speedily be released. He shall not die or go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord 
Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. And I have put My words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of My hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, You are My people. What a response by God. God says, don't worry about it. I got it. Absolutely. The arm of the Lord is going to act. I am the Lord. I do as I say. And he says, because of that, why are you afraid of people? Notice how that's how he begins in verse 12. So what are you worried about? Why are you concerned about the oppressors? Why are you worried about what humans will do to you? I am the one who will act. I am the one who's laid the foundations of the earth. And I have created all of these things. And he says, I will destroy those oppressors. That's what verse 14 is saying. As he tells them, I'm going to deal with them. And then he gives them something so powerful. The image of verse 16. I have put my words in your mouth. And covered you in the shadow of my hand. He says, I've got you. You're protected. Don't worry. I see what's going on. You're in the shadow of God's hand. And then to say in verse 16, perhaps the best of all. Here, Here is his power on display. I established the heavens. And I lay the foundations of the earth. Well, how did God do that? By His words. He laid the foundations of the earth and established the heavens by the voice of His mouth. And out of His mouth, He says, You are My people. It is unchangeable. You are Mine. And to think just for a moment how God is able to say, To a bunch of sinners that we've read about in this book. You are my people. Nothing that is within them deserves that. Nothing that we have seen for 51 chapters indicates anything for God to make such an amazingly merciful declaration. To say you can trust it because it is my word. You are covered in the shadow of his hand and you are my people and I'm going to act on your behalf. Isaiah prays for it. God responds and says, I will do it. And so he's leading up to these great words now of comfort, comfort to the people to know that you are my people. First comfort is found in verses 17 through 23, where he describes in verse 17, he begins with, you need to wake up. And he describes from 17 to 20, the fact that Jerusalem, the people of Israel have been suffering at the wrath of God. They have deserved it. That what a great contrast after saying, you are my people. The very next words are, and I've punished you because you're a bunch of sinners. You don't deserve a bit of this, but you are my people. I have decreed it. I have made this covenant. I am going to save you. My salvation will go to the ends of the earth, but you are drinking the wrath of God. But then you come then to verse 22 where he says, Thus says the Lord your God, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. 
And I will put it in the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your backs like the ground and have streets for them to pass over. God says, here's what I've decreed. No more wrath. I have made a covenant and you are my people and there will now be no more wrath. And I want us to consider what has changed in the condition of the people up to this point. Absolutely nothing. A masterful point of comfort is that the only way to escape the wrath of God is by the mercy of God. If that makes any sense. (laughs) You can't escape the wrath of God on your own. It is only because God is being merciful that there is any escape of the wrath at all. For everybody deserves the wrath of God. There's nothing to point to in our lives and our righteousness. Well, here's the reason why I get to escape the wrath of God. 51 chapters said no. There's nothing except God is a merciful God. God comes along and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call you my people. And therefore, the wrath is ended. And that is the comfort that is to be given to his people. And I submit to you, that is the essence of the comfort that we are to look toward. The comfort comes from looking to God who decrees mercy. Because when we look to ourselves and try to find comfort in our righteousness, are you like me and that always provides more discomfort? (laughs) You look at your life and go, well, that didn't work out very well. The more I try to look at my life and go, well, it's going to be okay. Now it doesn't look okay. I've got sins. Lots and lots of sins. And the only reason I'm not going to deal with the wrath of God is because God is a merciful God who said, I've made a covenant that you won't have to express and deal with that wrath. And that's what he promises to the people and says, I'm going to bring a servant who's going to bring a covenant so that the wrath will be ended. And you can be my people because God is a merciful God. First message of comfort. Don't look to yourselves for comfort. Don't look to your actions for comfort. Look to the God of mercy for comfort. To understand that God is the God of all comfort. And only He can comfort the downtrodden. And only He can say that the wrath has ended because His mercy has stepped in. Which leads to the second picture. Chapter 52 Again, we don't have time to read all of it, but notice just the first verse. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake off the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bones from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Here is the second picture of hope that he gives in these ten verses. The second picture of comfort is that you are now holy before God. The imagery is beautiful in that first verse. Put on your beautiful garments. Shake the dust off. You're now putting on the beautiful clothing before God, which is so reminiscent of how God speaks about holiness in so many other places. For example, like over in Zechariah chapter 3, where here you have Joshua the high priest, and he represents Israel. And all that he's wearing is filthy clothes. 
And there's the accuser saying, here's all the sins and is accusing and accusing Joshua as the representative of Israel. And what does God do with that? He takes the filthy clothes off of Joshua and gives him clean clothes. And he says, now you're holy before me. The book of Revelation uses the same imagery. It's here are the saints and they are given white robes because they've overcome with the blood of the Lamb. Here is God bestowing this holiness to His people. And so He's picturing His people, picturing Zion and saying, you're no longer polluted that God has decreed this holiness. And we recognize that it is God-given because again, there's nothing in the text so far that says anything's changed. They're still a mess. But God says, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to make you holy. Which becomes now the message of good news that we see in the rest of these verses, really from verse 5 to verse 10, is that now the messengers are going to go out with this good news. Notice verse 6 of Isaiah 52. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah says, There's going to be a gospel message. The good news is going to ring out. And notice what the message is. It is a publication of salvation. It is a publication of peace. It is a publication of happiness, it says in verse 7. But notice what the message is. Your God reigns. That's the message. That's the proclamation. And what is fascinating about this text is now send out the good news, send out the messengers as if it's already happened. It's this prophetic perfect that is used. It's like it's already occurred. Send them out. Go proclaim it on the mountains. How beautiful are the feet that go out and proclaim the good news of peace who describe this salvation because your God reigns. It hasn't happened yet, but he says it as if it has And he's not talking about them coming out of Babylon at all. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul uses this very text and says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? Here's the Isaiah quote. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? There's Isaiah 53. We'll get there soon enough. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Here he says, this is the good news. The good news is this very message. Your God reigns. 
Your God reigns, therefore the wrath is ended. His people are now be, are able to be called holy. And this now is the proclamation that is to advance throughout all of the earth. And Paul then sets it up like this and says, now how are we going to get everybody to know this good news that God reigns and that the wrath has ended and that salvation has gone out and peace is available? How is that going to happen? So he asks the question, well, they can't believe unless they hear. And they're not going to hear unless somebody's preaching. And there's not going to be preaching unless somebody's sent. And so he just lays it all out and says, there needs to be the message going forth because it is the message of Christ. That Christ reigns. That Christ rules. That becomes the message of salvation. It is the message of our comfort. It is the message of our hope. That Christ has risen from the dead, has taken His place at the right hand of God, and has sat down there and rules over all things. Isaiah is looking out and saying, when that happens, that's the proclamation of salvation. That's the proclamation of peace. That's the gladness and joy. Your God reigns. And Paul just says, how beautiful are the feet that go out and proclaim that message. That that is the message that needs to go out through all the earth. That that's the declaration that has to occur. That we must tell the world the wrath of God has ended in Christ. That there no longer needs to be the worry of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we saw this morning in our Bible class. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here is Isaiah proclaiming that very message. The wrath of God has ended because God is a merciful God. And He has declared His people that he can be- they can belong to Him. And they can be holy before Him. And the results of that message are absolutely beautiful. Notice what it says in verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they sing the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here's the response of the people. Break out into joy. Break out into singing because your God reigns and He has redeemed His people. And this is what we see in Jesus. In Jesus we see the power of God. The arm of the Lord being revealed to the ends of the earth. His salvation being given to the ends of the earth. And He says, rejoice because you've been set free. And now declare that message. To everyone else. For it is in that message. In that decree that God reigns. That he has come to redeem his people. That salvation can come to the ends of the earth. And now he says. Now what are you going to do about it? Look at verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight, no, you shall, yeah, you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. 
Here's the picture. Since the good news has been decreed, your God reigns. Salvation and peace are the proclamation. And the message is to go out to the ends of the earth that the wrath of God is ended. And you can be in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And now God has set you apart and made you holy, not because we are deserving of it, not because we are righteous. We are still sinners. And God says, I've called you holy. Now look what he says. Now live up to what I've made you to be. Depart. Go out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing. I've set you apart. I've made you my people. Now you can't go back to living the way you were living before. You can imagine what that would have looked like to these people. 51 chapters of you're full of sin. You've made a mess of your lives. I'm sending you into judgment, but I'm going to send a servant. He's going to save you and redeem you so you can be my people. And the people go, yes, we can have salvation. We can be redeemed. We can be God's people. Let's live just like we did before so that we got in trouble like we did the first time around. No. Is an expression of look at all that God has accomplished. Look at all that God has done. And that's supposed to change how you live. To come to the end of it all and say, now go out from there and be different. Be separate. Don't live like you lived before. You've been called out of that and you cannot be like the world. You can't be like those people. You can't live a life of sin. And again... Not talking about Babylon because Paul uses this one as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now here's the quote. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord until Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Go out from them and be separate. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? For we are the temple of God. We have been made holy in the sight of God. And we cannot now go and defile ourselves and unpurify ourselves, if you will, and make us back what we were before to live a life of sin again. The idea that God has set us free That now we can just behave as we want and look like the world, act like the world, speak like the world and live like the world is absolutely foreign to everything Isaiah was hoping for. Here is a people hoping for the opportunity to be able to be set free because of their sins. They are enslaved and they are paying the weight of that judgment by going into Babylonian captivity. And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you so that the wrath can end 
But we can't go back into the world of darkness. We cannot go back into the world of sin. There is the call, as he says in verse 11, purify yourselves. It is a great picture that it is not a one-sided operation. That God does not do everything and we sit back and do nothing and go, well, isn't it great that we're all people of God? Yea, yes. But nor can we look at ourselves and go, well, look at all my righteousness. That's why I'm here today. No. Notice the great balance that Isaiah pictures. It's because of God's mercy that the wrath has ended and has set us apart to be a people. But then he turns to his people and says, purify yourselves. Depart from that world. Come out from among them. Don't act like them. Don't watch what they watch and do what they do and speak how they speak. Come out from them because God has redeemed you. And you are to be a special people. You are to be the temple of the living God. You are to be the light to the nations. You are supposed to show Christ to the world. That is your task. That is your function. That is the picture. Verse 12 as we end and my voice ends. Notice how he compares it to the Exodus. Verse 12 is this comparison back to the Egyptian Exodus. There's a contrast and then there's a a comparison. The contrast is in verse 12. You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. Remember when the Exodus in Egypt happened, it was you got to hurry. That's what the whole unleavened bread thing. Hurry up, get everything, get your backpack ready. Because as soon as the angel of death comes, you're going. Be ready. You're going to go in haste. Not this time. He says, you're not going to go in haste. You're not going to have a physical nation chasing you on this one. But notice the parallel. For the Lord will go before you. And that's exactly what happened in the Exodus. When the people came out, God led them. Beautiful picture. We just enjoyed even as children. The pillar of cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night, as God led his people, but even better at the end. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Do you remember what happened when Israel backed up into the Red Sea and all the people said, well, thank you, Moses. You've brought us out here to die. And the pillar that was leading them to that point now becomes their rear guard and moves to the back of the pack. And prevents the Egyptians from attacking them and capturing them. As Moses then by the power of God parts the Red Sea and they safely move through. And here is God picturing and saying, I've got you protected. I am leading you out of your slavery to sin. I am setting you free from that bondage. The wrath does not have to be upon you. If you will put my law in your heart and you be my people and you depart from this world and not touch any unclean thing. And I believe the imagery is coming together and telling us, friends, the pilgrimage has begun. And we're on the walk to the promised land. We've been set free from sin. And God is leading us to our heavenly home, protecting our rear guard as we go. That salvation belongs to those who belong to Him. 
That salvation belongs to those who put their hope in Him, who put their faith in Him, who will turn away from unclean things, who will give their lives completely to the Lord and follow Him and serve Him. He says, I've set you apart to be my children and be my people. And that's why Paul pounces upon that to the Corinthians, because the Corinthians have gone back to the ways of the world and they're living just like the Corinthians around them. And he says, you can't do that. Called to come out from among them and be different and to be separate. It has called you to be his holy people, to behave as his temple that stands as a light of the world. Do you know your identity? Do you know who you are? Touch no unclean thing, for we are on the way to the promised land, and we long to be with our God forever as he walks with us today. Each step of the way there. What a beautiful picture of the glorious exodus that God gives. It'll be a while till we come back, but you know what the very next words are? About his servant. Who's going to be shamefully treated and die for the sake of the people. The text that we know very well, Isaiah 53. How is this all going to come about? How can we be his people? How can there be deliverance? How can we be set free? How can we be on this pilgrimage and be called the holy people of God? Because an amazing message is going to be declared about a servant who's going to die for the sins of people. And Isaiah predicts what that glorious servant will do. We beg you tonight to turn away from your sins. To see Jesus is the one who sets you free and has called you to holiness. That we do not deserve for his mercy to be upon us. That God is such a gracious and merciful God that despite all of our sins and though we are a bunch of sinners, he says there is a way for the wrath to be avoided, that the wrath can end and we can be his people. And it's all through Christ. And that's what the glorious gospel message is. He reigns. He sits on the throne. He rules over heaven and earth. And we belong to Him. We can be part of that glorious kingdom and receive all the benefits of being His children. We will depart from the unclean things. Set us ourselves apart from sin. And serve our Lord Jesus with all of our heart. May that be your motivation. I pray that Isaiah 51 and 52 does that. To look and see what God has accomplished despite our sins to motivate us to stop the life of sin. Look at all that he did while we were enemies and vile, wretched sinners. And how can we not want to stop that behavior and stop that sin because of the glorious Jesus who's come and died for sin? You're ready to respond tonight. You can do it this very evening to repent of your sins. Be confessed in as Lord, the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come down while we stand and while we sing?